Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy and joining me for this episode of Take Notes are Enter Shikari to talk about how they recorded and produced the album Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible. Enter Shikari are a genre-defying rock band from St Albans, England, consisting of lead vocalist and multi-instrumentalist Raoul Reynolds, bassist Chris Batten, lead guitarist Rory Clulo and drummer Rob Rolfe. Their expansive style combines elements of punk, pop, electronic and orchestral music and they are often considered the pioneers of the electronic core genre. The band initially formed as a trio in 1999 under the name Hybrid and in 2003 with the addition of guitarist Rory Clulo became Enter Shikari. Within their first two years they released three demo EPs, selling copies at gigs across the country and in 2007, despite offers of record deals, they released their debut album Take to the Skies on their own label, Ambush Reality. The album peaked at number four on the UK album charts and was followed by a tour across North America as well as countless festival performances around the world. Over the past decade, the band has continued to explore the boundaries of musical genres. To date, they have released six studio albums, sold out numerous world tours and won multiple awards, most recently Best Live Band at the 2017 Heavy Music Awards and Best Album at the 2018 Kerrang! Awards for The Spark. The band's latest album, Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible, was released earlier this year in April on So Recordings, reaching number two in the charts. It also sees frontman Rao taking on the role of producer for the first time with the band. Today, once again, I'm at home in Morden, South London, and Rao joins me from his home in North London to talk about how Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible was recorded and produced. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is the Dreamers Hotel. It is Enter Shikari with the Dreamers Hotel, and I'm very pleased to say that Rao Reynolds from Enter Shikari is connected to me now. Where are you, Rao? Hi, I'm in North London. It is a, uh, thought, I was going to say pleasant, but no, it looks pretty overcast today. <laughs> <laughs> have to start so, by talking about the weather, don't we? The yeah, we do, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at home in North London, um, because I was wondering whether you'd be in St Albans, because obviously the band is so associated with St Albans, I always assume yeah. that you still live there. No, um, the rest of the guys all do. I've been in London for about 10 years now. Mm. I sort of felt I had to be a bit closer to the hub, to it all, you know. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm still in, I'm like in Finchley, so I'm, like, I'm the exact middle point between St Albans and central London. <laughs> I literally got a map out and put my finger on the midway point. 
Fantastic. So uh, we're going to talk about three of the tracks from uh, the new album, Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible. And the first one we're going to look at is The Great Unknown, which is the opening song. And uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about being able to talk to you is trying to work out how an Enter Shikari song starts, because there's always so <laughs> much going on in your music that I'm intrigued to know how you demo things, how yeah. they all get together. Well, I guess it's probably the same with a lot of people. There's no like set routine. There's no kind of structure to the, to the way I work. You know, an idea can come from any instrument from anywhere and it can take, you know, some songs can take years, some songs can take a day. So <laughs> it really is just the broadest of uh, differing ways that a song can come to be. Uh, the Great Unknown started it has one of an element that is probably the oldest element out of everything on the album. So there's the piano section that it starts off with is from a demo in 2014. So we were, we were demoing the Mindsweep session. So that's our fourth album. Mm. And um, me and Rory were kind of jamming around. I, I was on the piano and he was on the guitar and I had this piano riff for a while, this kind of uh, mystical sort of disconcerting, like little ostinato and uh, we were playing around with chords to sort of get us to that, to really sort of make the suspense felt. And it went on to be a completely different song, which then therefore didn't make our fourth album and just got put back in the chest. And then I thought I'd revisit it and it, yeah, it turned out to be a completely different song. It's, it's just funny how like sometimes it's, you know, a riff, it's not its time. It just, it just gets put, <laughs> put back in the war chest and uh, yeah, just waits in the arsenal for its day. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, do you have a demo of that first yeah. session from 2014? Yes, yeah, so this starts off with me and Rory just like playing some chords which lead us into um, the riff. you when you're doing this oh god i can't even remember i think it was um chris had a little um bungalow well in his parents house it might have been in at the bottom of that because we sort of made a makeshift studio but that was earlier than 2014 so literally that riff there is you can hear without the guitar so this Yeah, that's been around before 2014. So I have a memory of playing that. Yeah, in this kind of our first like practice, you know, demoing little place that we made. We sort of begged, stole, and borrowed all sorts of gear and kind of yeah made our, our first makeshift studio. Um, so I think it was in it was in that. Wow. Yeah. So that really goes back. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um, very <laughs> long way back. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so is that one of those kind of default? pieces that you you've played on the piano kind of every time you sit down you just kind of pump that out for a yeah. bit yeah because as well that it's all in the right hand so you can play any number of kind of chords in your left hand and it will sound completely different i mean as we can see here it it's this kind of more dreamy thing here mm. and then it went into uh, this which was completely 
I mean, yeah, kind of techy sort of metal kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but it just, we never got that feeling exactly right how we wanted to. So yeah, it got just kind of put back. Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, so you, do you have a, a policy that nothing gets discarded? I mean, it might get pushed to one side. It might get put back in the chest, as you say, but mm. it's there for future reference. Yeah, there's, I was just going through my hard drives the other day. I've got about 15 hard drives just full of, yeah, demos and jams and, and all kinds of stuff that, um, yeah, I mean, obviously the large proportion of it will not see the light of day ever, but yeah, there might be that one thing that when you sift through, it jumps out and you have a uh, a new idea for, you know, how to present it to the world and it, it yeah, it makes it. Yeah. So you revisited that piano riff and were you on your own? I mean, in that instance, you were working with Rory, but um, when you revisited it, what struck you this time? I think, yeah, just as I was saying, there's so many sort of chords that you can play underneath that. I was just drawn to go back to it. Probably just, yeah, just like a stubbornness. Like, like you know, I know there's something in there that can work. And I think the first thing that came out of it was the the verse section, which I'll just play here. It's a kind of... Is this a new beginning? You know, it's got that sort of reggae, like old school mm. ska feel. I was, my dad was a... a a DJ like predominantly Northern Soul and Motown, but he had quite a big, you know, sort of skinhead collection of, of reggae and stuff as well. So I was I was sort of brought up on Desmond Decker and Toots and the Maytals and the Pioneers and stuff like that. So I wanted to try and, you know, that that's music or that atmosphere, that vibe is so far removed from that piano riff, which is, you know, much more sort of about suspense and tension. But I thought there would be a, a way of, of marrying the two. And I think also probably inspired by the police as well, because it's got the, you know, the classic sort of offbeat drum beat, but then with the sort of um, plucky little, little cheeky guitar riffs. Yeah. But I think I can play it without the vocals. Yeah. So it's, it's all about these little you know, little flurries of guitar work sort of moving around the that constant offbeat rhythm I was quite drawn to. So I think I was, I think I was probably just here in my room at my studio at home, just playing around with that and got quite excited by it because it, it kept that feeling of tension, but it, there's a sort of an added cheekiness to it, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's quite a subtle use of ska and reggae in it. You know, it's, yeah. it doesn't dominate the song. It's not like, oh, wow, they've done a ska number. It's just kind of... Parts of it just there, no. It's just that verse as well. I think it was mm. just that one thing that then gave me the, the sort of impetus to want to carry on with it and get a bit of enthusiasm, really, because, yeah, I mean, the, obviously the rest of the song sounds, there's no remnants of any of that early <laughs> yeah. um, inspiration at all. Yeah. So, I mean, can you remember how you then went from that to the rest of the song? I think then came the synth. So... I wanted to use the same piano chords and see if I could make something bigger, vibier. Because, I mean, this is sort of melancholy as well when it's just as a piano, but um, obviously it's a completely different vibe when it's these synths. So I think it was a, it was a conscious decision as well for this album to, to go back to having like rave and acid house and trance as a big influence. I mean, mm. it's always been there throughout our all of our stuff, really. But, you know, it's it was very much the kind of defining style of synth work for when we first started out. And I think I was kind of drawn to it almost on a, 
more of a philosophical level rather than um, a, a musical level. You know, I've, I've always loved those styles of music, so I'm always happy to use them. But I think, like politically, we're at a, a time that's quite similar to the, you know, sort of the 80s and the early 90s when rave was like a, it was like an antidote to the the kind of neoliberal mindset that was starting to pervade the world. And, you know, as Thatcher was sort of talking about the, what was it, the um, the deaths of society, or the society is, is no more and all that kind of stuff. I think rave was like this, it was like an answer to that. It was like, we want community. We want that feeling of, of you know, losing yourself and becoming one of a mass, you know, feeling connected to other humans. And I think with all the division that's around at the moment, I think people are sort of longing for that feeling of community that they may get from, well, obviously no one's getting it from live music at the moment, but um, yeah, even more so, I guess it becomes yeah. more kind of prescient. Well, that's interesting when, I mean, I was just reading about quarantine raves the other yeah. day and the lengths that people will go to at the moment in order to put on those events. Yeah. And yeah, I can see that there's a certain movement behind that that is about, look, we want to get together with people. We want to be in a yeah. space with people again because we haven't been allowed to do that. Um, yeah, and- absolutely. There's still that remnants of this sort of obsession with individualism as well. And I think Rave was the complete antithesis of that. And so to be able to bring that back and hear in such an obvious way that you know, this synth is, is pure, just prodigy orbital. Yeah. Um, Paul Van Dyke, KLF, it's, it's all those kind of early influences that drew me into that style of music. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting that you turn to it and use that as a motif with resonance of different kinds, you know, that you would use a musical element because it has connotations of various different things. Yeah. And it also even, you could say, even connects to some of the, the words in The Great Unknown, possibly. No, in that you're yeah. kind of asking people, are they or creatures, aliens? <laughs> yeah. Is anybody out there? You know. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, looking up to the sky and sort of a fevered moment of euphoria. That lyrics, you know, I stare at the skyline, uh, reach for a lifeline, all, all that kind of thing. Yeah, it all sort of seems to fit quite well, I think. Yeah, really interesting. So you employed that that weapon alongside <laughs> the little scar thing that was going on. I mean, and, mm. so, and so when you're developing all of this, is this you on your own? developing all like these ideas yeah predominantly i usually take it to the guys when i've got a you know what i think is a, a solid structure and, and then they're my sort of testing apparatus <laughs> um you know they're not afraid to tell me if something doesn't work or you know something to them doesn't feel right so that's always good i think it kind of helps because you know if the ideas are coming from you know one specific place anyway it's good to bring someone in at a stage where you think it's understandable but you're obviously so closely tied to it you're so involved in it that it's sometimes great to have those fresh ears and fresh minds to Mm. bring their own take and sort of tell you where it perhaps isn't you're not representing what you had in your mind um well enough so that's really helpful but um i think the the chorus was probably next to come and, and that was when i would have brought chris in to sort of try out some harmonies i remember with the bass on this one um, there's some great bass lines on this though yeah I, I mean again in the verses it's it's very sort of it's that police it's no like sting isn't it really I love the, just the cheekiness of it it's like it's almost like a calypso bass line it's a you know that sort of plucky sound and we, I remember as well we used a um, 
a Lomo, which is a, a channel strip from Lomo, which is a Russian company. They make cameras now. Um, it's kind of this 70s channel strip that gives the bass guitar this kind of almost feeble, like an endearingly feeble kind of frumpy retro sound. And we used it quite a lot in the album, but you can you can hear it here because it's not... It doesn't sound sort of lo-fi, but it doesn't sound kind of hi-fi either. It just, it gives it this nice balance. And that, that was at, that was a bit further down the line. So that was when we were at the studio in um, Vader uh, in Worcestershire. Right. So that was when you were kind of finessing what you were doing, really. Adjusting it mm. to get the all over picture. You know. Yeah. I mean, this, so this was the first album that I produced by myself as well. So I, there were a lot of differences that we you know once had both hands on the reins i was like right we want to do this and this and this and one thing that we really wanted to concentrate on was drum production like i really wanted to just bring that into the 21st century because i don't rock drum production bores me a lot of the time because it's very there's only a certain amount of things you can do with an actual drum kit and we stretch that to the limit whilst also you know not being afraid to use the the techniques I mean, but as a producer, I was, I learned my trade in drum and bass really. So a lot of the production techniques come from drum and bass styles of production where, where the drums, uh, you know, there's a massive spectrum of what drums can sound like, but they're the one thing that's always there is, is the prominence, the kind of punch. So we spent ages on that. So this is, uh, yes, yeah, so you can hear the snare drum there. It's quite. It sounds like a sample, but it's not. <laughs> it's right. um, it's a very small snare drum that we spent a long time tuning right. I mean, do you come up with a sketch of the drums for Rob to work from? I mean, as you work up yeah. this demo that you then share with the band, um, how far do you go? I mean, it, it, all these sort of, you know, the, the basic ideas will be there. You know, often with, with Rory and Rob, they'll complain because, of course... I mean, I can play the drums to a certain extent and I am a guitarist, but I often will, in the sort of um, manic nature of getting ideas down quick, I won't even like attempt to justify them by whether they're playable or not, <laughs> you know, whether they're actually <laughs> workable for a human. So um, there'll be a lot of times with drums where I'll put down things that it's too layered or he needs three or four arms or, you know, anything like that. So Rob comes in and then not only, you know, adds his own styles and feels and kind of feel, but he'll also be, you know, taking out and editing anything that is actually impossible. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a classic example that one of our older tracks has uh, a lot of guitar tapping in it. And it's extremely fast. The song's called There's a Price on Your Head. And I, I wrote the demo of that by tapping each. I think I did it in half bars. So I did that, da, da, da. Then I recorded that. Then da, 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 recorded that like on these in these bits that for me were playable. But when you put it all together, Rory's like, "Oh Christ, I've got to go and learn this." Like, how was, <laughs> um, that that kind of thing happens quite quite a lot because um, I'm too lazy, I suppose, or, or I'm too kind of involved in the, in the frenetic nature of the the initial burst of creativity for me to be able to be um, working out whether anything's actually playable. Yeah. Um, so synth-wise, yeah, it's mainly just that kind of trance synth. We've got a few other things in here. We've got a lot of Reese's. So again, that's another thing from drum and bass, like a Reese synth. It's a very highly processed, EQ'd, 
filtered kind of style of synth. Um, Do you have a, can you illustrate that? Yeah, this thing. So another thing that sort of makes Chris as our bassist, his job very hard is, well, and, and mine as a producer, is working out where things are going to sit. Because obviously the bass guitar and bass synths like that are going to be competing for space. So we spend a lot of time working out how we can include everything. A lot of the time, Chris will actually play the bass very high up the neck. So he'll be filling out a sort of higher part in the spectrum. And that's influenced... We started doing that not even as a way of getting around the EQing and the battling for space. I can't say we're that technically minded, really. Um, that was more of just an influence from like post-punk, I think, just the the way that Peter Hook used to play like so far up the neck and, and use the bass guitar like it was just another melody machine, really, rather than yeah. like being relegated, I, I say in inverted commas, to, to the lower ends of the spectrum. Yeah, but it's almost with Enter Shikari that those lower ends get represented by by the synths that you're using that mm. become kind of the basis of a track or that not just the bottom end, but they're kind of like the the guide, as it were, underneath. And then Chris is freed up to do all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, that's where Chris shines as well. Because, I mean, he he's a guitarist first. He learned the guitar. You know, we've been making music since we were 11. And I can remember him getting his first guitar, which meant we could actually not just be singing into his tape machine, but we could actually be playing... Um, a guitar however badly at that age and um, I think him having that bassist was it I think it was Noel Gallagher that always used to say that guitarists make the best bassist I think it's true because then you there's a there's a freedom or sort of a, a kind of an anarchy you know of, of like not just playing the root notes you, he'll be all over the place I think Paul McCartney was really good at that as well just making using the bass as like a an instrument for counter melodies rather than always being like the, you know, the solid anchor at mm. the bottom of everything. But yeah, so it obviously doesn't make Chris's job easy, but I think he's really good at that. Um, so after that demo that I played you, or the kind of jamming thing, really, there's some vocals, I think just some sort of la-di-da, you know, it's kind of scatting, really. So is this still a demo then? Yeah. The, yeah. So yeah, this, this is just you doing all the guitar bits yeah. and yeah. Yeah, so those those verse melodies that I was just kind of lardy daring there didn't even make it, didn't make the cut. vocals are a lot more sort of yelpy I think I was, it sounds like I was doing that somewhere where I, I couldn't be too loud or too um sort of forceful in my voice or something. right <laughs> would that have been here where you are now then uh, it could be could have been on tour did right. we did a lot of the demoing on tour for this we recorded one of the tracks in America actually on on, on tour crossing the Rubicon it was predominantly done in Texas hmm. so yeah the, that may have been demoed in the, in the back of a bus uh, late one night when our crew was trying to sleep or something. <laughs> You're not allowed to sleep. We're making music here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
But I mean, that's listening to that. I mean, that's very worked up now as the demos have developed. You know, that's entering Enter Shikari sound, isn't it? You yeah. Know, you, you've fleshed out a lot of the different elements there. Yeah, that one went quite far down the line. And I think with this album especially, the line between a demo and the actual track is just, you know, barely visible anymore. It's just at what point do you stop demoing and at what point does it become, you know, when we moved into the studio, we brought over all the tracks, you know, the individual channels from the demos and ended up using so much of it. You know, it's that classic thing. Sometimes it's, you know, what we call demo-itis where mm. you, you'll be clinging on to like some sort of atmosphere from the demo just because there's a nostalgic emotional value for you, but it's not actually any good. And then sometimes it's the complete opposite. You'll be in the studio trying to replicate a vibe that you have for, for days. And then you just think, oh, why are we doing this? Let's just use the demo. It's fine. Like, I think getting over that sort of, you know, thinking that everything must be the best quality you can do it. And it must be recorded in the best way. We've been lucky to sort of work with some producers in the past who completely just got rid of that way of thinking and we're very much all about the vibe, you know, just trust your ears and yeah, it doesn't matter if it's not EQ'd perfectly or, or if the, you know, the initial recording wasn't, wasn't the best it could be. It's, it's, that stuff is just, life's too short. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how are we going to progress exploring the great unknown further? So we've heard some demos um, and we've heard different elements. Yeah. So there's a technique that we use on the vocals across this this album i don't know what it's actually called i call it jungle stretching so it's just where you kind of pull the vocal wider and wider so it kind of breaks up it's, it slows down and it sort of it breaks up in its quality in this really endearing way that began to be used in jungle music throughout the the 90s so that goes, is this that's me going is this a new beginning so i've just slowed it down and pulled it apart and that's something that I can even remember learning on my, I did one year at music tech at um, Hertfordshire University. I, I had to pull out because the band was just getting too big basically. Yeah. But I, I remember choosing, or one of the reasons I chose Hearts Uni in that course over like music tech courses at other universities was there was a whole module learning how to use the Akai sampler, which is the only thing I knew about it is that you could, that's where that effect comes from. <laughs> and um, so I, I remember, okay, yeah, I'm going to pick this then because I, I just wanted to do that. And yeah, so that's kind of peppered throughout the album. That There's a track called Apocaholics Anonymous, which um, uses that style of, of vocal effects quite a lot. But I thought it was quite, I mean, that intro where it's just the piano, it's quite sort of barren. And I remember adding those effects quite late in the day because that at that point they were on the album in lots of other places. And I thought, well, let's start the album with it there straight away as a nice little homage to that, you know, sort of jungle drum and bass and even garage. And it's a very sort of, you know, like a UK sort of sound that I grew up with, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, I'm not sure if there's any other specific things with this track. Sure. Do you want to play us a blast of it then um, with the master? Yeah, sure. I'll play from the second verse soon as we haven't really heard any of that yet. Yeah. Shepherd's flashlight, his beam sweeps like 
to think that you know you had that piano riff that refrain that dates back a long time but something that you've been exploring again and again you know and it can lead to this eventually you know which yeah. is it's quite a leap isn't it in some ways but <laughs> yeah. i guess as you say i mean if you're doing that with the left hand and just trying to find other things that take it somewhere else and then once you've found something then that triggers all these other ideas yeah it's ridiculous how different this has ended up compared to any of the other early ideas that came from that piano part. I mean, when I first heard this, uh, in some ways, it seemed like kind of classic Shikari. Yeah. In that it had all those different elements. So it's got the rave, it's got the drum and bass, it's got the rock. And then, as you say, it's got all these other little things going on too, such as you know, the scar, kind of police reggae type thing, which separates it and gives it a new identity. Mm. But at the same time, and that's the mad thing about Enter Shikari as a band, you could draw on so many different things, often all at once yeah. in what you do, and yet you make it all so cohesive and, and make sense. I always think it's quite an achievement. You know, every time I put on a new track from you, it's like, oh, whoa, you know, where are they going this time? <laughs> you know, it's always really exciting. You know, almost like the great unknown. You know, you're going to take us there. <laughs> but you're holding our hand as you take us into these new territories. It's great. Thank and, you. Um, presumably, I mean, you've got that track, and how do the rest of the band respond? You know, they, do they get excited by what they hear? I presume they must do. Yeah, I think, I mean, this one especially, it was, it's quite immediate. You know, it's got two sort of very repeatable vocal lines as well as having all the energy in it um i think it's we're, we're quite lucky in the fact that because i was brought up from an early age around so many different styles of music i don't have to consciously concentrate on making sure our music stays diverse because it's sort of that's how it kind of naturally comes out of me. Sometimes to the detriment, I think, you know, because our music can be so far from the middle of the road and have such variety in it that people, we're not the easiest band to get into, I think, you know. It's hard for people to get their bearings um, with it. But yeah, I th you know, I'm quite sort of fidgety as a creator. So for me, it's just, it's what makes it worthwhile, like creating these, these kind of soundscapes, these areas where there's just so much going on so much of a variety of, of emotion this different spectrum of textures and things that's what makes it really exciting for me i think and yeah I, the other guys i think for this one especially were very, very intrigued and very happy and excited to get sort of working on it properly in the studio You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. 
Tapeit solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. It's interesting also because we contrast that with the next song that we're going to look at, Waltzing Off the Face of the Earth, which comes in two parts mm. on the album. And it illustrates well how the fidgety mind of Rao Reynolds has to go somewhere else. <laughs> and and, and yeah. this is a good example, this this album, Nothing Is True. You've got an orchestral piece on it. You know, you've got this song we're going to look at now, Waltzing, which has that that once revolutionary rhythm, you know, that changed the, mm-hmm. the landscape of, of music across Europe, which always, it now represents other things, doesn't it? The waltz and waltz time. Mm. Yeah, well, we used it purely as a way to disorientate people slightly or make it ever so slightly uncomfortable experience. You know, for the average pop or rock listener, 3-4 is quite a foreign space to be in. The vast majority of pop and rock is in 4-4. So 3-4 is like just enough weirdness to make people just a bit disconcerted. And I think that was, you know, the whole song... The lyrics is just a load of sort of lies and mistruths. <laughs> you know, the whole album is, is very much influenced by this rise of post-truth politics and world that we live in at the moment. And so, yeah, we wanted um, the rhythm to sort of reflect that by making it sort of uh, g- giving you a kind of feeling of just slight unease. Yeah, yeah. So with that idea that you wanted to... Um not throw people off, but make them think in a way just uh, by throwing in something completely different for them. Had you already started working on this music anyway and it just seemed the right way? Uh, yeah, I had written this piece. Yeah, I don't actually have a demo of it, unfortunately, but I basically written a piece for brass, which was this kind of ridiculous oompa thing. And... It was just going to be an instrumental, like an interlude on the album. Um, so it was basically what you hear at the end of the track, which is this. I mean, this sounds like a jazz band. Yeah. <laughs> it's... And, and how did you create that? I mean, is that all done on a keyboard then? or, or no? What? Well... So it was all done on MIDI at first. I mean, well, I play the trumpet. That was the first instrument I learned. So I could play the trumpet parts. 
but then the sort of French horn, trombone, uh, tuba, <laughs> a baritone sax as well, that that was all just done on MIDI. And it wasn't until we, you know, much further down the line that when this song was being considered as, to be on the album and to have vocals as well, then we thought, okay, well, obviously we have to get real musicians in. And that's what you hear then. That, that was a, a, right. an actual... Yeah. yeah, so that's not the MIDI recording no. of, of you fiddling um, around. I think all I've got uh, left... It's just to... too good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the guys we got in to do it was so good. But, um, what we got here? I've got, yeah, all I've got left of the demo, the remnants is this just, it says English horn staccato. <laughs> so, I mean, I, MIDI, um, MIDI brass isn't the best kind of thing. You can get some amazing samples nowadays, but... Um, you know, as someone that was in orchestras at school and, yeah, as I say, plays the trumpet, you you don't want to hear MIDI brass on an album. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so th but that's how it started off. But it was good enough for you to sketch down these ideas. Yeah, it was just literally a, a two minute. I mean, how do you describe that? It's just this kind of messy. So it sounds like a sort of drunken, you know, you're in one of them. Uh, what are they called? The German beer halls. <laughs> A beer holler or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're just, you know, getting pissed to German folk music and, and it has this kind of sleaziness. But as well, I think because of the chord sequence, it has a, it still has a disconcerting sort of kind of vibe to it. So that's how the song starts. So it's a lot more bare. But just way the bass is constantly descending. It just feels like, oh God, it's just, I wanted to get this atmosphere of just a, you know, a downward spiral of society, basically just, and it, to represent that, it couldn't be centered just around fear. It had to have a sort of disconnect. It has to have a feeling of disbelief and a sort of flippancy as well, because often as humans, we react with humor just as a defense mechanism. So I think I tried to get all of that into this, whether, you know, everyone hears all of those things is another thing entirely, but. And was that in response to the words that you'd written? No, at, at the start, I just wanted to try and encapsulate all those things in music, you know, because mm. I was writing the album when, so, so Oxford Dictionaries said that post-truth was their, their word of the year in 2016. So sort of from then onwards, you know, after Trump lied about his inauguration crowd and everything, you know, this more brazen way of just lying and it's now acceptable or, or you know, like you can just get away with it. And that was just the start, obviously, since then. Yeah. Now in, in 2020, we've seen so much happen. And, and as I was writing this, this whole album, that, you know, it was at its height. And so I wanted to try and represent that in the music. But I think as I built the song, I felt like, okay, no, I, I need to put lyrics over this. I think to have the song really hammer home this feeling of just you know, letting out a sigh of just frustration and disbelief and fear at the state of the world. I think it needed a, a kind of narrator, really. So I'm, I'm sort of telling a, a story. I'm, it's a description of the mess that we're in. And that was directly inspired by, um, well, a, a lot of the album as well, um, by Sgt. Pepper's. It's the album that I go back to more than any other for inspiration. And so this song specifically being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, where, mm. you know, where John's describing the sort of circus performance thing. I wanted to get that same sort of style. So that's how with the vocals I'm, I'm describing the mess, but then also we've got all this kind of atmosphere. 
again, slightly disconcerting because it, it has that f- sort of, uh, what, what those glasses, you know, where you sort of twist and you see all the, the shapes. <laughs> what the- yes. But it's like you're looking through one of those, you know. Again, it just adds to the disconcerting nature. So when you add those to the brass. Kaleidoscope. Yeah. That's the word, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine having a smile as I start this song and just the smile slowly fading. You know, just the corners of my mouth just going down right. and down. I think that's sort of what it makes me feel. It's kind of, yeah, just gets progressively more like, somber <laughs> as it goes on yeah yeah and so the words that you came up for it i mean the title of the album comes from this song doesn't it so mm. you say or sing nothing is true and everything is possible and then you used this in two parts so um waltzing off the face of the earth crescendo is about four tracks into the record and then you close the album with another version of it mm. and then you twist the words to something else so it's it then turns into nothing is true and we're walking off the face of the earth so this is this this doom um mm. <laughs> that you're alluding to yeah in a way yeah you know, where nothing is real nothing is true and because of this you know we're we're kind of walking away from the planet but also everything we possibly have set up because nothing is true yeah a lot of it i mean this song especially had just a lot of imagery as i was making it and that that waltzing off the face of the earth i could just imagine you know, a couple in full ballroom get up, you know, gowns and tucks, just waltzing off the, you know, the face of the earth. Like that's just what, how I sort of imagined, you know, if I was a, an illustrator or, or something that I think that's what I'd be uh, painting. And I wanted to try and paint that same sort of vibe with music. Yeah. All very depressing, this song. <laughs> yeah. But it's fun as well. Well, it's interesting it's because it, in, it is fun. But in the second half, you know, you have that plaintive trumpet. It's almost as if the brass has shifted. So in the, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how you, so the first part is crescendo, then you've got piangavole. Is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah, piangavole. Yeah. <laughs> piangavole. Um, so that has this lovely plaintive trumpet. So it's almost as if the, you know, the brass band element has kind of faded away and mm. there's just a lone, lone soloist. Yeah, it's more serious, um, I think. Yeah, it's it's kind of more reflective it tries to end the album on a sort of note of realism, you know, because there's moments on the album which are sort of catastrophically pessimistic. There's moments of great optimism as well. And I wanted to just sort of leave the album with the door open, you know, that sort of classic way where, the, where a film will end and not sort of give it all away. It's like, well, now it's down to you sort of thing. And I, I think that in the Piangevole, it's a... Um, it's still somber and it's still kind of slightly disconcerting. You know, it has these sort of like kind of stuttering effects that come in that make you think that your lead has come become unplugged. I called them the interrupters. So again, it keeps the disconcerting nature with these... That kind of stuff. Mm. But as an emotional atmosphere, it's much more comforting, I think, in general. 
I sort of hear it as a like a palate cleanser or something like after you know you've just gone through this album you've gone through this journey and this is like a sort of moment of like taking stocks so, like okay yeah we live in a society that's quite heavily post-truth yeah things have become possible that we never thought could you know possibly happen but this is where we are we need to regroup we need to come together and work out where we can go from here and work out what we can do so obviously the the more orchestral stuff i mean i did the trumpet but the what is it oh, we got here we got some flutes oh where are they gone no i've lost me flutes <laughs> <laughs> oh well you can sort of hear them, <laughs> the main thing but um, <laughs> them yeah yeah they were done by the the prague symphonic Who performed the elegy for Extinction. Yeah. That is also part of the album, yeah. which is the kind of orchestral piece within the middle of the record. Yeah, they were, you know, as you'd expect, really just incredible musicians. You you put the thing in front mm. of them and they were playing it, you know, almost perfectly straight away. Um, I remember the um, the way the elegy starts when they were going through the, the very first run through. So, you know, literally they, they've had the piece put in front of them. They haven't even sort of flicked through it. We're just, they're just sight reading it. And um, I remember the second violins looking at me, you know, giving me a sort of side eye, uh, evils basically, because their part is a very relentless, repeated phrase that it's, it's not an ostinato, it's a riff, you know, you know, I wrote it, you can tell I'm a guitarist, it just did a little that's what it is. And now you have to do that for two minutes. It's basically a workout. I just got this image burned into my mind. It's me just like covering my face, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so, like <laughs> realizing that, you know, up until that point, the second violins were just a channel on logic. <laughs> you know, they weren't, well, they weren't human. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, ha having these people having to play that, yeah, I did feel sorry for them. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're incredible musicians. So, I mean, you have all these skills. Do you write out the music or did you get somebody else to? write that all out for them? Um, no, I was very lucky to basically be sort of walked through the whole process really by George Fenton, who's, I mean, where do I start? He's uh, he's one of my sort of favourite, you know, living composers really. He's a sort of the BBC's flagship nature documentary composer. So, you know, Planet Earth, Blue Planet, all that kind mm. of stuff, you know, he did all of that as well as, you know, countless amazing films. I think my first film that I saw him in was Gandhi. I remember my mum sitting me down to watch that, you know, that 1980s amazing film. Yeah. And yeah, so he, he kind of guided me through the whole process and he orchestrated it because uh, I can write music for trumpet, but other than that, I can write for instruments, but I can't actually, you know, notate it. Mm. It, it would take me far, far too long. It wouldn't be a good use of, of my time. So yeah, he came in and, and helped me arrange it as well. And, um, you know, having someone of his experience and expertise there throughout the whole process and especially on the day as well because I'm the type of person who is uh you know I'm an introvert really so to put me in a, in a room with 70 musicians and expect me to be able to be comfortable in telling them when they've gone wrong and, and you know what needs to change that was extremely daunting for me so to have him there on the day picking up on every little bit that we needed to adapt was a godsend really yeah 
That's fantastic. So, I mean, did you and he go out to Prague then to record the orchestra? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went out. Mm. We spent two days there at this. It's, it's very typical of Prague. It's this very grand street with this wonderful tall building that on the, the outside you can't really, you don't really know what it is. And you walked in and there's this grand hall, which is just empty. And a lot of the building is desolate, but then you walk down the stairs into this basement and it sort of opens up into this massive orchestral studio. It's just, you wouldn't expect it from the the, the face of it that has this whole underground layer, if you like. Yeah, just a surreal, incredible experience to be able to have a piece that, you know, I wrote, be brought to life with these musicians who are so astoundingly brilliant. Yeah. It's such a learning experience as well. And, you know, it's, so, it's always so good to push yourself out of your your comfort zone and writing a full orchestral piece is something I've always wanted to do properly. You know, I've written orchestral stuff just for myself or for, you know, other little projects outside of Shikari, but never taken on actually composing and recording a full orchestra and and all of that kind of stuff. So it was, yeah, it really sort of pushed me, pushed me forward. Yeah. And how did you hook up with George then? Um, I think we got introduced, we're on the same publisher. So I think he, our publisher introduced us and George was quite intrigued by our, our music. Like George is not, he's not what you expect from a sort of, well, in some ways he totally is, but then in other ways he's like, he's quite punk, you know, in, in his mindset. And he's got a very progressive attitude to music and he's he's so open. And he was really sort of taken aback by our, I mean, I usually call it musical agility. It's what we sort of pride ourselves on. And um, he ended up coming down to see us at a small show that we did for Kerrang! at uh, the Hope and Anchor. You know, it was, it's like a competition thing. So I think there was only about like 60 people <laughs> tucked into this yeah. tiny venue. It was an amazing little show a few years ago. Yeah, and he came down and I just remember seeing him like towering <laughs> at the back. He's like this really tall guy. And uh, yeah, he absolutely loved it. And um, and for me, that was incredible because, you know, I'm a such a fan of his music. And uh, yeah, we just kind of struck up a relationship and uh, a friendship, really. And then and I asked him if he'd sort of help me uh, yeah. with the process of bringing this song to life. And um, it, was, it was a brilliant experience. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we'll close this episode with Elegy for Extinction. But uh, back to waltzing. Is there anything yeah. we need to hear from waltzing? I, I mean, you did mention that there were some interesting guitar parts in the first mm. part of waltzing. Yeah. So a lot of the time we're we're recording guitar with Rory in the control room and the amps in the live room. So we've got the heads where we can, you know, adjust every tiny setting with us in the control room whilst not being blasted all day by the actual cab because you yeah. know to to make a cab really burn and get the sound you want it out of it you've got to push it. So we have that in a in a different room and then we just have it coming through our our monitors to monitor it. And um we thought the end of waltzing one is such a cacophony, such a ridiculous, you know, intense bit of music. We thought that he needed to play it right in front of his amp. So we'd be getting all the feedback, all the kind of horrible, nasty tones that, you know, we'd normally try and avoid when recording something of a good quality. So we, yeah, we, yeah. we sent him out there and uh, destroyed his ears for an afternoon whilst he was recording his part. <laughs> yeah, so it starts off with him just basically chugging the chords and as it goes through, you see him, you can hear him move closer and closer to the amp. So you get these like wails. It's like the amp is sort of, you know, mournfully crying. Mm. 
So that's Rory chugging, but it sounds glorious. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I mean, mean it's, you know, some people make whole careers out of that sound. Oh, you know, absolutely. Like, that could be Melvin's. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we always want to keep that that sense of the the live experience in there. But yeah, I think just that end, that outro, it just in its it's ridiculous. Wow. I mean, it seems quite buried in the mix almost Mm. because there's so much going on. Can you isolate those drums? Because there's a lot going on there too, isn't there? (laughs) That's my favourite bit on the whole track. (laughs) This little... (laughs) The little sort of elephant sound effect on the tuba. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so drums... There was a lot we did on this. So we had, I think we had four kick drums on their sides. So he was playing them like a marching band would, you know, when they when you see them sort of strapped over their right. chest. I think we all had one at some point. We were just whacking the hell out of these kick drums. Um, this sounds like one of those days in the studio where at the end of it all, you say, whoa, yeah, <laughs> what have we done? Fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these are, yeah, the kick drums. Yeah, have that little roll there. So it's like a timpani drum almost, really. Then we had marching mm. snares. So marching snares is is a sort of... It's become a calling card. I think on this album, it was one of the conscious things that I wanted to just have as much marching snare as possible. Like, I just love marching snares so much. So uh, <laughs> we went out into the courtyard at the studio. And it's amazing because it's kind of an old stable. So you get these reflections, you know, reverberations off. And it's a very odd delay that you get and we I think we had two drums and we had Rob recording on those and building up like a you know this whole marching snare and marching snare is sort of a yeah a peppered throughout the album but I think we'll hear them again on satellites and then so Rob <laughs> tuned five of his snare drums uh, differently, so there, it was kind of like toms. So he had like a really high snare, and then lower snares. I think it was five of them he had. So, and he was playing this kind of riff. So, it was... it's quite a nice, nice texture that kind of got added in. Mm. Um, then we added in rim shots. So the same thing, him going around five snare drums, but just hitting the rim of the snares instead of the actual drum. As you can hear there, there's a bit of distortion, which we recorded in, in real time through various guitar pedals and things, saturators. And so this is coming up to the drop now. He also had orchestral cymbals as well, as well. <laughs> you know, where you have one in each hand and you smash them together as they do at, right. the, at the back of the orchestra. The funnest job in the orchestra, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so there's all sorts of percussion there, just really hammering home that sort of cacophony, just the, the sort of end of the, the world, dull kind of madness. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you might have been... Uh, rushing around Vader trying to find all these things and thinking, <laughs> yeah. no, well, do they have these crash symbols? What's going on? Yeah, no, I think we had 
one small van just for drums and percussion when we were going up there, to be honest, that we kind of, yeah, as I say, big stole wow. and borrowed from various places and people. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so one other thing probably worth looking into was the synths on this track because there's there's a wider range of synths, you know, both hardware and software that we use on this track than any other on the album. And they kind of come together to make this lovely wash. Um, so I think the first thing I I played on when we got to the studio was a, is it Farfisa? Have you heard of? Yeah, that will do as a pronunciation. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. it's um, a classic keyboard. Yeah, classic it was actually organ. the, yeah, the, the first time I'd sort of properly used one. And, and obviously it was massive from the 60s mm. to the 80s, really, as the, the sort of standard organ and um so yeah i was playing you can hear there where the the timbre of the sound changes because obviously the keyboard was split so some of the chords have this dark sound and then it goes light there <laughs> and obviously they're very simple chords but I thought that Farfisa sound was it again I love anything that's endearingly feeble and I think this has that <laughs> this has that nature you know it's not very wide it's not very powerful it has that sort of you know buzziness to it but yeah then we added we had a lot of arpeggiating synths so we had the the ARP 2600 which is <laughs> incredible Again, a, a kind of vintage synth, but it's one of these ones that, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, you look at it and it has its its surface is just a mesh of patch cables. So these tiny patch cables, so you can route, you know, different oscillators to different effects and all sorts of stuff. It's, you know, you can spend years mastering this instrument. It's a, a crazy thing, and I, I cannot say that I knew how to control much of it at all. But we managed to get some some incredible ARP stuff. So we got. That one's being side-chained off the Farfisa, I think, or maybe off something else. So then we got these ones about to come in. I'll bring in one at a time because they're quite overpowering. So we've got one there. That's side-chaining off the kick drum. We've got this one. Another one. So interestingly, none of them are actually really in time. They're not set to the right tempo. They create this mess of just pluckiness that's kind of in its own world. And then I've added in those sort of circus organ things as well. So th this was I think we did this on, it was either a Prophet or a Roland. All of these synths I've mentioned so far are, you know, ridiculously expensive if you want the real thing, but there's Arturia do a, a amazing, like a digital replicas of all these old synths. And, and they're so good. They're, they're much better than any other kind of software replica that's come before yeah. them. And so we've got a few that come in here. So this one's 
you can tell that this one isn't retro because it's so bright. This is actually um, Massive, which is a native instrument software that is kind of our staple, or at least had been for the last sort of 10 years, really. And we've got this mental thing, which is an Archeria replica of... I'm not sure what's a replica of, but it's another sort of... Maybe one of the sequential circuits... these lovely sort of reverberant things so yeah when you add it all together it's just this lovely warm the big moment where everything comes in yeah yeah <laughs> oh, maybe I should just say something about the vocals sorry um, the uh, we have a we have a vocal here that's just called monks None of that reverb is synthetic. It's all real. So that was at um, another studio we went to, Vale, and it was just me down one end of the corridor and then mics set up in, in a different room. So the sound was coming just in through a door into the, into the mic and it gave us this kind of cathedral-esque choir sort of sound. Um, wow. And that is just you? Yeah, yeah. There's about three just- of me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Right, giving up the whole, you know, getting quite operatic with <laughs> And we also had this absolute madness. So in the outro, there's two vocals of me just, you know, just losing my shit is all I was always going to say. Um, <laughs> and just being heavily affected. So I'll play it with with the effects first. <laughs> So each ear is completely different. They're hard panned. And this is happening during the um, the outro, which is just with the brass. So it's... So it's those. So if I take the effects off, it's literally just me going mental. Everything is possible! And then with the effects. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> That's great. I mean, maybe a great way to finish off discussion of waltzing is by playing that, mm. that finale of one again. I'll play from, uh, from just before the drop. So, Waltzing Off the Face of the Earth 1, 
crescendo is very well named. I can't actually hear you well enough to make... Oh, you can't? <laughs> Shall I, um, <laughs> I don't know whether to stop it or not. Just let it play. <laughs> probably love to hear you now <laughs> yeah <laughs> um great hearing that bit again um, i was just saying waltzing off the face of the earth one crescendo is very well named because <laughs> yeah that just builds incredibly it's great hearing how it was all built up and hearing it broken down because all those elements are so strong in themselves aren't they no, that they're worth putting a spotlight on. Just hearing how you created those. Yeah, especially with this album, with the layers that are on it. Like I could release that track in its original idea of just a brass band piece, you know. Because sometimes, mm. you know, the, the layers will get lost. You'll miss them if they weren't there. But um, to bring out their true glory, I often thought of you know releasing like alternative versions of, of, of stuff. So that may have to be something that we do eventually. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, it's great that you've shared them with us here on Tape Notes because I think people would be really excited to hear all those different elements in there. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. So we move from waltzing to satellites, which does this start with an orchestra? What's at the very start yeah. of, of satellites? So this is, um, it wasn't actually the orchestra. So this was just me. I can't play the violin, but I like to try. Um, so this is just me playing, layering up violin notes. And then uh, I've recorded bits of, of trumpet, little sort of licks and, and things. And then I think also the, uh, the Mangle, which is an amazing plugin that I use to create sort of soundscapes. So we've got... Um, it's like the sunshine coming through the clouds, you know, after, after a storm. Yeah. I think it's just, it's just nice to set, set the tone, you know. It's very clear that the atmosphere on this song is going to be much more sort of positive and, and uplifting. Yeah, I, I love that. But then that, that little section at the beginning of Satellites, it's very brief, isn't it? It's just mm. a moment that achieves that. Yeah. Um, but it's beautiful and very effective. I think it really works. Thank you, yeah. I, I suppose when the album is includes so many different, and, you know, quite powerful emotions, you have to pay attention to the the journey as a whole and you know because if you're just slapping these different emotions you know suddenly in, in people's faces it often can be quite detrimental to the whole thing and getting the dynamics right and getting the flow right is something we sort of think about quite seriously on the whole process um this track actually started again in a, in a completely different kind of initial thought it was just a drum and bass thing really the earliest demo i've got has got vocals and things over but you can tell that the, the drums are very synthetic. It's that very sort of flat, neurofunk sounding thing. So this is the original demo. Yeah. And it's got the guitar. I remember the guitar chords are quite similar to, um, I think it's Black or White by Michael Jackson. The sort of, is it Slash that plays on that track, I think? <laughs> it's good. It does, yeah. <laughs> We're sort of playing around with that, those kind of, you know, very jubilant kind of chords. Mm. 
Yeah, so it, it did always have this kind of long, well, palate cleanser thing. Yeah. But yeah, weirdly, this demo only goes up to the chorus, so it obviously didn't have a structure at this point. Gibberish lyrics. <laughs> but funnily enough, the da 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 da's stayed. <laughs> it's funny when you, you can't you put something down in a in a demo. It may be gibberish or it may be, you know, just a da 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 thing. Mm. And you try and find lyrics to fit it and it just you can't find anything that works as well. So you just <laughs> end up going with the the da da's, which is uh here in the main main bit. Those, those things. But, you know, sometimes those can't be beat. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I remember thinking it was, it'd be quite bold to have a double chorus straight off <laughs> Such a two fingers up moment. It's like night round a double chorus right at the beginning. Like. <laughs> but yeah, apart from the um, the gibberish lyrics, it was quite sort of far along immediately. I think it blossomed quite quickly as a in terms of the melody and the, um, the general idea of the song. Yeah, yeah. It would be great to hear this one built up then, um, mm. track by track, as you play it explaining what's going on and who's okay. doing what. Yeah. Well, I'll pay from the, the bridge and then loop the chorus. Uh, the bridge is interesting because we actually morph between two drum kits. So we start the song quite close to the, the idea of the demo. So the drums are very tight, very synthetic. So, well, synthetic sounding, it was a real drum kit. So we actually made up this drum kit. It was almost like a toy drum kit because the snare, I think, was a five or six inch snare. So this tiny, very, very high piccolo snare. Then we had mini hats, again, no bigger than a sort of CD really, or like a, a 78. And we had uh, also a very small kick drum as well. So it gets this lovely sort of tight. Again, that's sort of influenced by drum and bass, particularly Neurofunk where they they went for a phase of pitching snares up and we thought, well, well, why don't we do that actually naturally? Let's just crank these tiny snares up. But as you can hear, it morphs into the big, fat, deeper snare. One of my favourite snare sounds on the record. It's just like... Yeah. And Rob was... Rob, our drummer, was, was extremely adamant that, like you know, every drum would be real. We'd affect it afterwards and process it and, you know, make it sound synthetic when it needed to. But like, we didn't use any drum samples on this whole record, which is, I think it's quite rare. Like, especially in these days, I mean, you know, sort of non-musicians non and non-producers are often sort of quite shocked to find out that a lot of their favorite records just used drum samples or, you know, at least layered quite heavily drum samples mm. over drums that they recorded. And today, there's no real reason not to do that. You know, there's such amazing 
sample packs of every type of drum you could ever imagine. But I think Rob had this real sort of stubborn attitude. It's like, no, I want to have every drum made from the studio by us. I was a bit skeptical at first because I was like, we probably won't be able to make every sound that we want to make without embellishments of some kind. And um, no, it, it just kind of, it forced me, it, you know, it was like pushing me in at the deep end as a producer. <laughs> it was like, no, you have to um, do this purely from the actual natural shells that we have in the room. Yeah. So yeah, this one uses two, two drum kits. So would he just play certain sequences that you were going to use or would he attempt to play much longer sequences? So would he be switching from one kit to another or would he just concentrate on one snare at a time? I think we did passes of the whole track on both kits just in case. Mm. But we pretty much knew that we wanted the verses as this thin, flat you know, but the drum's very close. It's all about the attack. And then in the choruses, it just opened up and it was just, everything was deeper and broader. It just had more more power to it, I suppose, as well. So yeah, I'll just loop the chorus. Again, with the bass, it's quite quiet in this mix. We're using that Lomo channel strip to get a, a sort of certain right. frumpiness to it. I'll just take out the drums. I think we've, we've saturated it quite heavily there as well. And then in the chorus, along with the drums, we've got the doom, what we call the doom toms which uh, I think we had a couple of low toms and also kick drums as well set on their sides to be used as, as, as kind of timps, really. And that gave this... That stuff. Yeah. And then we've got a couple of guitar parts. So we've got a normal, nice, close crunch guitar. And then we also had a, a pass of it with the wah on. Just subtly being moved. I mean, Rory and, and Dan, who engineered the record, between them have a, such a ridiculous collection of guitar pedals. And so there was a lot of um, afternoons of just experimenting and getting really interesting guitar sounds there's one of my favorite on the um on the the record is actually in the bridge which is this it's almost like a theremin <laughs> mm. and so the second half of the chorus we have this we've called it the edge epic so i guess it's u2 inspired <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, so that's more of a soundscape, right? Yeah, sort of thing. We got this as well. Which is the that we call the ice cream van. <laughs> so that's Rory's guitar. These just... are quite accurately described. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all about the imagery. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all the guitars together. 
else have we got? Yeah, so synth-wise... Got just some sub stuff there. Apart from the sub, we've got these. So this was done on the... I think it was the Jupiter. Yeah, it was the Roland Jupiter, which is just a beautiful vintage synth that we use quite a lot. A little mistake there. <laughs> uh, then we've got... some kind of fat sounds in the bass as well. This was Jupiter as well, actually. It's not in the chorus, but I should mention the Whirly as well. There's a um, beautiful old Whirlitzer at Vale Studios, which is the second studio we went to. They're just such a joy to play because they're so percussive. So you can get such wonderful texture out of it. So I'm sort of tinkling around and here comes in the, the actual riff. Then it just becomes like an inverted pedal for the rest of the track. But yeah, such a joy to play. Interesting hearing that isolated. <laughs> and then... If we hear it in the context of the song, it's going to be quite different, I think. Yeah. And he gets overtaken by the piano there. So I'll bring all those parts back in one by one. So starting with drums, which is the second drum kit. And we've got our doom toms. And we've got our first guitar. And the ice cream van. Bring in some bass. As well as the synthetic stuff. We've got the Jupiter. Sort of thickens it all up. Finally, we've got Chris's backing vocals.
And that's the full house. <laughs> Fantastic. And I think that really illustrates also your role as a producer, because um, clearly you're on top of all of this. How difficult was that? taking on that. I mean, obviously you wanted to, you wanted to embrace that. But at the same time, once you're in the thick of it, you know, you're singing the song, you're writing the song. There's a lot of different things to think about and everybody's performances as well. Mm. I don't know. Did you get overwhelmed at all? Um, yeah. I mean, it was a very steep learning curve. It's something that I wanted to do for a while. And I was very lucky that our last album I co-produced with David Coston, who's an incredible producer. And I learned so much from him. And that sort of built my confidence up. And it was just something that with an album like this, that I wanted to step up the variety of instrumentation more. And I wanted to approach, you know, a wider range of subjects. And I think to do all of that neatly, you know, forensically with like the right attention to detail, it felt like I just, I needed to, you know, be in control like at all times. Like I'm definitely a little bit of a control freak anyway. So I'm totally fine with, only sleeping one hour a night for a week, you know, if, if, it, if it means that I'll get it sounding how I want to do. Um, I'm happy to sort of make everything else in my life suffer um, to yeah. a certain extent. And for this to take my full attention. But I was so lucky to have people like Rory was helped me so much throughout the whole process. He was kind of my right hand man throughout the whole way. And I think as a outfit as well, we work so well together. So Chris is kind of our guy for live. So he's the one who's kind of thinking about the live show to some extent all the way through it and working out how we're going to translate this onto Ableton and who's going to play what and all that kind of thing. Mm. And then me and Rob, Rob was obviously there to help me with, with the drum production, or at least to kind of push me along with his kind of adamance that it all had to be real. <laughs> and yeah, and also we had Dan Weller, who's he produced our third... He's worked on like almost all our records in, in either as helping with guitar production or producing it completely. And he was there to engineer and offer like help with the production as well. So, and then we had in-house engineers. So, you know, I had a, a, such a brilliant team with the orchestral stuff. I had um, a mixer who helped me as well because, you know, it's 70 instruments is quite difficult mm. to tame. So yeah, there was a full team that whenever I, I felt, you know, I needed that help, like I'm, I'm quite, I'm good at sort of speaking up and delegating and I'm very happy to sit back and, and learn and, and let other people show their abilities. And, and um, yeah, so it was a great experience all around it. There were no points, even at its most stressful or most sleep deprived where I, I kind of lost it. I can remember being in, in Australia. We were, we did an uh, Australian festival in January this year seems you know so long ago different world now but um, yeah and that was when we were basically finishing the album and and i can remember it was of course as most things are right up to the wire and me and rory were i think we were, had about a four o'clock slot and we were playing three festivals and so we play the festival and then we'd rush back to our hotel room and then basically spend the whole night editing things doing last bits of mixes you know, all, all these, you know, minute details that most people won't notice, but we were sure they had to be done. And so I, I think in that whole trip, we only slept about six hours over about five days. Wow. But um, even at those points, the euphoria of the music just like, you know, carries you through. Yeah, fantastic. And in terms of your vocals, I mean, you have to think about that element as well. How do you like to record your vocals? It's a couple of ways. Like Dan is brilliant 
like we work so well together. Like he knows my voice inside out. He knows when it's getting dry. He knows when I'm, I'm pushing it too hard. He knows when I'm, I've over pushed it and I'm, I'm sort of losing it. So he's, he's brilliant at helping me record. But then often a lot of the times I'll just record by myself at home as well. A lot of it was done here. Um, and through this mic, the Chandler Red, it's as soon as I heard it, uh, David Costin introduced me to it on our last album. And it was like, okay, well, I have to use this mic for everything now going forward. It's absolutely beautiful. It's based on a lot of the old like EMI circuitry and Abbey Road mics. and um, But it brings it into the 21st century with a, with a clarity that you just won't get anywhere else. So, so yeah, it's, um, and, and also some of it was recorded on tour as well with Rory at the helm. So kind of all, all different ways. I, yeah. I can sort of get into the mindset and not be sort of, you know, put off by a certain scenario or, you know, people hearing or something. Mm. I, I can sort of turn on a switch and just like, okay, going into vocal mode now. And I don't have to have the, uh, the decorative lighting and, you know, you know, the, the yeah. mood lighting to get in a vocal booth and be on my own to get into the mode. I think I've, I've developed, I think purely because when you're creating, you're just like rushing to get ideas out of your, your head as quickly as possible before you sort of forget them or, or lose a, a vibe. I think because of that, you have to learn to be able to just whack vocals down, you know, no, no being timid or, or anything like that. Just get them down wherever, wherever and where, whenever you can. Yeah. Yeah. And you have some very dense mixes in the music. How did you develop your skills as a mixer? Well, I mean, on this album, I was, it was completely split up. So it was quite weird. We got um, spec mixes done by a few mixers and we liked so many of them that we ended up using three mixers and myself. So I mixed three or four of the tracks and then we mixed the other ones with other mixers. So I had a, a great deal of help there, but I've, Again, I've, I've learned a lot of my sort of trade through drum and bass. And that's such, it's such a forensic part of music production, the whole drum and bass world that, you know, that's, I guess with any style of dance music, it's all about the, the production because you want to fill that dance floor. So, you know, the EQ has to be right. The textures have to be right. The dynamics have to be right. And so I, that's where I learned most of my stuff, but then I've, I've sort of mixed a few rock things here and there as well. But mo yeah, most of, most of what I've learned has either come from the producers that I've worked with before, like David Coston and Dan Weller, you know, I've learned so much from them, but then also like YouTube mm -hmm. tutorials, like just spending hours, you know, this literally everything you could ever want to know, whether it's some intricacy about your door or, you know, some mixing technique or, you know, whatever it is, you, you can dial that up on YouTube and just, you know, learn it quite easily. So it's incredible, you know, as with any other sort of technology or any other sort of industry, it's all sort of there for you, for you to learn if, if you want to, if you have the patience to, to learn it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we have a couple of questions that we always ask people on tape notes. One of them relates to kit. Do you have a particular favourite piece of kit that you wouldn't work without? I mean, you mentioned the Chandler Red mic that David Coston introduced you to, um, but are there any other things that, you know, you think about that you will always bring with you? Ooh, I'm certainly not like much of a kit guy. Like I have quite a simple setup here at home. I mean, the Kemper, you know, for guitarists, that's changed our lives. We've been using that for a while. So it's a digital amp, but it's, it's the first digital amp that we heard a few years ago now that we were just like, wow, that's so real. That's so great. And it comes 
you know, there's a hardware version, so it, you can then use the same sounds live that you you have on record. So there was a lot of Kemper on on this record, as well as real heads and cabs as well. But you could, with the Kemper, you can actually. I'm not the right person to speak about this. This is Rory's realm, <laughs> but you can like model your sounds from another amp or another cab, and the Kemper will sort of replicate that with with quite a surprising degree of success. <laughs> Um, so that's definitely one. Um, but uh, for me, it's probably more plugins that are my, you know, just can't can't live without. Just built, you know, over the years, just building up like a collection. Like, I think, I mean, there's so many I could talk about. There's one particular, just quite cool, which I don't hear people speaking about a lot. And I think it's quite a small company. Um, they've only done like a few plugins, and one I used a lot on this record is Sound Guru. So they've only done a few, but there was one I used. It's a granular synth called Mangle. So it's a sampler. So you bring in anything, be it a vocal, guitar, a drum, and you can you can stretch it. You can take very like little strips of your sample, like little atoms almost, and you can expand them and play about with them. And it's basically how you can create soundscapes or just like padding that is such a great way to start an idea or to start creating. So you know, if so, with satellites, for instance that probably started with the mangle. I probably put in, I think I might have recorded some violin, put that into the mangle, you know, stretched it, made it into this big, you know, like a, an audio cuddle, <laughs> like a bit of comforting music. And that then spurred the creative impetus to you know, write the rest of the track. So that's probably one of my favorite plugins, I think. Yeah, the, the mangle. Yeah, that's interesting. And the other question we like to ask everybody is whether they have received or whether they have a piece of advice that they would pass on to other people. One thing that I've always noted about Enter Shikari is that you've been fiercely independent. You know, while you may have hooked up with other labels or distributors to get your music out there, you've always been kind of looking after your own destiny. You know, and I wondered whether that resulted from any words of wisdom when you were starting out oh gosh it's an interesting one because i don't think when we were starting out we were sending off our demos to any label that we could find the address from you know that we respected so we were very intent on you know in our minds getting signed was making it looking back is incredibly yeah. naive and um i'm very thankful that we sort of our management or a manager, Ian, came in just at the right time because we were very close to signing a, a deal that would have been terrible. As soon as you look into the small print, it was an awful deal. Um, but we were so excited by it and we knew a few bands on that label that we really respected. So I think, it, you know, it wasn't until we learnt a lot more and, and kind of grew as a band that we, we learnt that the way we conducted ourselves, you know, being completely DIY was purely out of necessity. It was because no one was interested um, and it wasn't until we sort of grew a bit older and we, and we found out about like say discord records and like you know the american like hardcore punk diy scene and then learning about labels that had done the same thing over here and also like factory records you know going back to tony wilson everything like that and so when we sort of discovered these scenes one they were influencing our music but two they were influencing the the sort of continuation of our DIY mindset because we sort of realized, oh, people have been doing it like we have for decades. Like this is a, quite normal for, for alternative music. 
and it sort of it gave us uh, a sort of sense of pride that was possibly misplaced because I say we were never sort of trying to uh, you know on some sort of philosophical you know adamant political statement yeah. by by remaining DIY but yeah once we sort of turned 17 or I think it was about yeah 16 17 when when the labels did start to to sniff around and start to take us out for meals it was only then that we were realizing that ah actually all the the legwork that we've done and all this DIY attitude that we've had we actually need to hold on to um so yeah I, I think it was the advice of our manager and our lawyer that probably helped us from um probably self-destructing in some of the deals looking back that we were getting offered yeah as a musician do you have any advice for other people or did you receive any advice from somebody who who helped shape your musicality or your attitude to music um i think just it's that whole thing of again the, the musical agility i think like making sure you keep broadening your horizons is so important because you you'll very quickly put yourself in a box like often it's not other people that put you into like an area and, and keep you there it's actually yourself so being able to keep pushing yourself i mean a lot of people call it like your diet you know your musical diet your cultural diet make sure that that is healthy make sure it's a varied diet i mean that's the most important thing you, you know you are what you eat you are what you listen to so like if you're listening to just like a very thin section of the musical spectrum and you know 20 years ago even 10 years ago when we were starting our band there was still more of a kind of this kind of stringent way that you would define your whole being your whole character by one very specific part of the musical spectrum and now i don't think it's like that as much at all anymore and i think that's great because you know it's i usually use like the dessert analogy it's you know sometimes you might have a, a cupcake for dessert but then you're missing out on a, a lemon meringue on a chocolate gateau on <laughs> eaten mess i don't know do you know what i mean like it's um there's so much out there to be like utterly inspired and influenced by and that has been the most important thing for me and you know as, as i've said earlier that I, i'm quite fidgety so luckily i have this sort of inbuilt thing that i'll if i'm bored of something i'll just be like okay i need to look for something new and if i hear a piece of music that excites me i'll need to immediately know how they did everything what inspired them but i think that's so important if you want to make interesting music obviously my advice would be completely different if you want to make commercially viable music or you know very sort of standard middle of the road banal pop music then it would be a different advice but if you want to make interesting music if you want to like be at the at the helm of kind of creativity then you, yeah it's all about just keeping pushing yourself and that you know that's when you make the best music when you've balanced predictability with novelty that's when you you get that middle ground but you have to work for that middle ground because you will just naturally drift towards predictability as a songwriter or composer or producer or whatever even as a listener as well we all get comforted and find ourselves stuck listening to the same things um, so you have to you know, keep your horizons open. Yeah, fascinating. Rao, thank you so much for joining us and for opening up the world of the new record to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I've mentioned it earlier, we're going to play out with Elegy for Extinction and uh, that wonderful uh, day you had in Prague with George Fenton. Um, it sounds fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.